At which point Daphne awoke, glad that she had. The broadened horizon was red, but the back of the sky was full of stars. She was stiff to her very bones, and she felt that she'd never eaten in her life, ever. And this was very convenient, because the smell coming out of the pot was fishy and spicy, and was making her drool. The boy was standing some way off, holding his spear and looking out to sea. She could just see him in the firelight. He'd piled on even more logs. They roared and crackled and exploded with steam, sending a thick cloud of smoke and vapour into the sky. And he was guarding the beach. What from? This was a real island, much bigger than many that she'd seen on the voyage. Some had not been much more than a sandbank and a reef. Could anyone be left alive within a hundred miles? What was he frightened of? Mao stared at the sea. It was so flat that all night he'd been able to see the stars in it. Somewhere out there, flying to him from the edge of the world, was tomorrow. He had no idea what shape it would be, but he was wary of it. They had food and fire, but that wasn't enough. You had to find water and food and shelter and a weapon, people said. And they thought that was all you had to have, because they took for granted the most important thing. You had to have a place where you belonged. He'd never counted the people in the nation. There were enough. Enough to feel that you were part of something that had seen many yesterdays and would see many tomorrows, with rules that everyone knew and that worked because everyone knew them, so much so that they were just part of the way people lived. People would live and die, but there would always be a nation. He'd been on long voyages with his uncles, hundreds of miles, but the nation had always been there, somewhere over the horizon, waiting for him to come back. He'd been able to feel it. What should he do with the ghost girl? Maybe some other trouser men would come looking for her, and then she'd go and he'd be alone again. That would be horrible. It wasn't ghosts that frightened him, it was memories. Perhaps they were the same thing. If a woman followed the same path every day to fill a calabash from the waterfall, did the path remember? When Mao closed his eyes, the island was full of people. Did it remember their footsteps and their faces and put them in his head? The grandfathers said he was the nation, but that couldn't be true. Many could become one, but one could not become many. He would remember them, though, so that if people came here, he would tell them about the nation, and it would come alive again. He was glad she was here. Without her, he'd walk into the dark water. He'd heard the whispering as he had dived down after her in that scream of silver bubbles. It would have been so easy to heed the wily words of Lokaha and sink into the blackness. But that would have drowned her, too. He was not going to be alone here. That was not going to happen. Just him and the voices of the old dead men, who gave orders all the time and never listened. No. No, there would be two of them to stay here, and he would teach her the language, so they would both remember, so that when people came they could say, Once there were many people living here, and then the wave came. He heard her stir, and knew she was watching him. He knew one other thing, too. The soup smelled good, and he probably wouldn't have made it just for himself. It was white fish off the reef, and a handful of shellfish, and ginger from the women's place and Taro chopped up fine to give it all some body. He used a couple of twigs to drag the pot out of the embers and gave the girl a big half-shell to use as a spoon. 
and it was funny, mostly because they both had to blow on the soup to get it cool, and she seemed very surprised that he spat out fish bones into the fire, while she very carefully coughed them into a piece of frilly cloth that was very nearly stiff with salt and sand. One of them started giggling, or maybe it was both of them at the same time, and then he was laughing so much he couldn't spit the next bone at all, and instead coughed it out into his hand with the same little noise that she made, which was <coughs> which made her nearly choke. But she managed to stop laughing long enough to try to spit out a bone, which she couldn't get the hang of at all. They didn't know why these things were funny. Sometimes you laugh because you've got no more room for crying. Sometimes you laugh because table manners on a beach are funny. And sometimes you laugh because you're alive, when you really shouldn't be. And they lay back, looking up at the sky, where the star of air sparkled yellow-white in the east, and Emo's campfire was a sharp red overhead, and sleep hit them like a wave. Mao opened his eyes. The world was full of birdsong. It was everywhere, and every kind of song, from the grandfather birds honking up last night's leftovers, to, from the direction of the low forest, something that really should not count as birdsong at all, because it went, Polly wants a fig, you Bible-thumping old fool. What? Show us your drawers. He sat up. The girl had gone, but her strange, toeless prince led toward the low forest. Mao looked into the clay pot. There had been hardly anything left by the time the shells had scraped it out, but while they had been sleeping, something small had licked it clean. He could try clearing some more of the debris off the fields today. There could be more crops to replace the god-anchors. Say the chance! Oh, well, up until now it had been a good day, in a horrible kind of way. The god-anchors. Well, they were things. If you asked about them, you'd be told you were too young to understand. All that Mao knew was that they kept the gods from floating away into the sky. Of course, the gods were in the sky in any case, but asking about that was a silly question. Gods could be anywhere they wanted, but somehow, for reasons that were perfectly clear, or at least perfectly clear to the priests, the gods stayed near the god-anchors and brought good luck to the people. So which god brought the great wave, and how lucky was that? There had been a great wave before, everyone said. It turned up in stories of the time when things were otherwise and the moon was different. Old men said it was because people had been bad, but old men always said that kind of thing. Waves happened, people died, and the gods did not care. Why had Emo, who had made everything and was everything, would he have made useless gods? There it was, out of the darkness inside, another thought that he wouldn't even have known how to think a few days ago, and so dangerous he wanted to get it out of his head as soon as possible. What did he have to do to the god-anchors? But the grandfathers didn't answer questions. There were little mud or wood godstones all over the island. People placed them for all sorts of reasons, from watching over a sick child to making sure a crop didn't spoil. And since it was seriously bad luck to move a godstone, no one did. They were left to fall apart naturally. He'd seen them so often that he didn't look at them any more. The wave must have moved hundreds of them and washed them away. How could he put them back? He looked up and down the beach. Most of the branches and broken trees had gone now, and for the first time he saw what wasn't there. There had been three special godstones in the village, the god-anchors. It was hard, now, to remember where they had been, and they certainly weren't there now. Those anchors were big cubes of white stone, almost too heavy for a man to lift, 
but the wave had even snapped the house posts and thrown lumps of coral the size of a man across the lagoon. It wouldn't have worried about some stone blocks, no matter what they anchored. He walked along the beach, hoping to see signs leading him to one almost buried in the sand. He didn't. But he could see a godstone on the floor of the lagoon, now that the water had cleared a bit. He dived in to fetch it, but it was so heavy that bringing it out needed several tries. The lagoon had been scoured by the wave and shelved quite deeply at the west end. He had to carry the stone along the bed, sometimes leaving it behind and coming up to fill his lungs with air, until he found a place shallow enough to bring it out. And, of course, it weighed more out of the water for some magical reason no one understood. He was out of breath by the time he'd rolled it end over end up the beach. He remembered this one. It had been next to the chief's house. It was the one with the strange creature carved on it. The creature had four legs, like a hog but much longer, and a head like an elaskinin. People called it the wind, and gave it fish and beer for the god of air before they went on a long journey. Birds and pigs and dogs took the fish, and the beer soaked into the sand, but that didn't matter. It was the spirit of the fish and the spirit of the beer that mattered. That's what they said. He dived in again. The lagoon was a mess. The wave had scattered house-sized bits of the reef everywhere, as well as tearing a new entrance for the sea. But he had seen something white over there. As he got near, he saw how big the new gap was. A ten-man canoe could have got through it sideways. Another godstone was right under Mao's feet. He dived, and a school of small silver fish fled from him. Ah, the hand, the anchor for the fire god! This one was smaller, but it was deeper and farther from the beach. It took him more than an hour to steal it back from the sea, in short, slow, underwater bounds across the white sand. There was another one he'd glimpsed right in the new gap, where the surf swirled dangerously. But that would be water, and right now he felt that water had taken too many sacrifices lately. Water could wait. "'Gather the stones and give humble thanks, or you will bring bad luck on the nation,' said the grandfathers in his head. How did they get into his mind? How did they know things? And why didn't they understand? The nation had been strong. There were bigger islands, but they were a long way off and weren't as favoured. They were too dry, or the winds were bad, or they didn't have enough soil, or they were at places where the currents were wrong and the fishing was poor, or they were too close to the raiders, who never came this far into the islands these days. But the nation had a mountain, and fresh water all the time. It could grow lots of vegetables, ones that most of the islands couldn't grow. It had plenty of wild pigs and jungle fowl. It grew maniac roots and had the secret of the beer. It could trade. That was where the jade bead had come from, and the two steel knives, and the three-legged cookpots, and cloth from far away. The nation was rich and strong, and some said it was because it had the white stone anchors. There was no stone like that anywhere else in the islands. The nation was blessed, people said. And now a little boy wandered around on it, doing the best he could, always getting things wrong. He tumbled the block called the hand onto the sand near the fire. You left something on the anchor of the hand if you wanted success in hunting or war. 
If you were lucky, it was probably a good idea to give it something else when you got back, too. Right now, he gave it his bum. I fished you out of the sea, he thought. The fishies wouldn't have left you offerings, so excuse me if I offer you my tiredness. He heard the rage of the grandfathers, but tried to ignore it. Give thanks to the gods or you'll bring bad luck, he thought. What, right now, would be bad luck? What could the gods do to him that was worse than they had done already? A wave of anger rose like bile and he felt the darkness in him open up. Had the people called on the gods when the wave broke? Had his family clung to these stones? Did the gods watch them as they tried to reach higher ground? Did the gods laugh? His teeth chattered. He felt cold under the hot sun, but fire filled his head, burning up his thoughts. Did you hear their screams? he yelled to the empty sky. Did you watch them? You gave them to Lokaha. I will not thank you for my life. You could have saved theirs. He sat down on the hand, trembling with anger and apprehension. There was no reply. He looked up into the sky. There were no storm clouds, and it didn't look as if it was about to rain snakes. He glanced at the blue bead on his wrist. It was supposed to work for only a day. Could a demon have crept in while he'd slept? Surely only a demon could have thought those thoughts. But they were right. Or maybe I have no soul at all. Maybe the darkness inside is my dead soul. He sat with his arms around himself, waiting for the trembling to stop. He had to fill his mind with everyday things. That was it. That would keep him safe. He sat and looked along the naked beach and thought, I'd better plant some coconuts. There's plenty being washed up. And pandanooses. I'll plant some of those too for shade. That didn't sound demonic. He could see the picture of what it would be in his mind's eye, overlaid on the horrible mess that the beach had become. And in the middle of the image was a white dot. He blinked, and there was the ghost girl coming toward him. She was covered in white and carried some kind of round white thing above her head to keep the sun off, perhaps, or to stop the gods from seeing her. She had a determined expression on her face, and he saw, under the arm that wasn't holding the sunshade, what looked like a slab of wood. "'Good morning,' she said. "'Daphne,' said Mao, the only word he was certain of. She looked down meaningfully at the block he was sitting on and gave a little cough. Then her face went bright pink. "'I'm so sorry,' she said. "'I'm the one who's being bad-mannered, aren't I?' Look, we need to be able to talk, and I had this idea because you're always looking at the birds. The wooden slab wasn't. It split open when Daphne pulled at it. Inside it looked like sheets of paper vine, rolled flat instead of being twisted up. There were marks on it. Mao couldn't read them, but Daphne ran her finger over them and said loudly, Birds of the Great Southern Pelagic Ocean by Colonel H. J. Hookworm, M. R. H. F. R. A with sixteen hand-coloured illustrations by the author. Then she turned over the sheet. Mao gasped. Her words were gibberish to his ears, but he knew how to speak pictures. It was a grandfather bird, there, right on the paper. It looked real, in wonderful colours. No one on the island had been able to make colours like that, and they never turned up in trade. It looked as though someone had pulled a grandfather bird out of the air. "'How is this done?' he asked. Daphne tapped it with a finger. Pantaloon bird, she said. She looked expectantly at Mao, then pointed to her mouth and made a sort of snapping motion with her thumb and forefinger. What does that mean? Mao wondered. I'm going to eat a crocodile. Pantaloon bird, she said very slowly. 
She thinks I'm a baby, thought Mao. That's how you talk to babies when you want them to understand. She wants me to say it. Pantaloon bird, he said. She smiled, as if he'd just done a good trick, and pointed to the thickly feathered legs of the bird. Pantaloons, she said, and this time she pointed to her frilly trousers, peeking from under her torn skirt. Pantaloons. All right, it looks as though pantaloon bird means trouser bird, Mao told himself. Those frilly legs did look just like the bird's strange feathered legs. But she's got the name wrong. He pointed to the picture again and said, in a talking to baby's voice, Grandfather bird. Grandfather? Mao nodded. Grandfather? The girl still looked bewildered. Oh, she needed to be shown one. Well, he wasn't going to roll away the big stone for anyone, but it was quite a performance. Mao stroked an invisible long beard, staggered around leaning on a non-existent walking stick, muttered angrily while waving a finger in the air, and, he was proud of this bit, tried to chew a tough piece of pork with invisible non-existent teeth. He'd watched the old men eating, and he made his mouth look like two rats trying to escape from a bag. "'Old man!' shouted Daphne. "'Oh, yes, very droll. The old man-bird. Yes, I see what you mean. They always look so annoyed.' After that, things happened quite fast with the aid of the sand, a stick, and some pebbles, and a lot of acting. Some things were easy, like canoe, sun, and water. Numbers were not too bad after a false start. One pebble is, in addition to being a pebble, one. They worked hard. Bird, big bird, small bird, bird flying, nest, egg. Fire, cook, eat, good, bad. Good was a mime of eating, followed by a big smile. Bad was Daphne's unladylike but realistic pantomime of throwing up. They got the hang of here and there, and probably something that did the job of this is or here is. Mao wasn't too sure of a lot of it, but at least they had the start of something. Back to the sand. Mao drew a stick figure and said, Man. Man, said Daphne, and took the stick from him. She drew another figure, but the legs were thicker. Mao thought about it. Pantaloon man, he tried. "'Trouser man,' said Daphne, firmly. "'What does that mean?' Mao wondered. "'Only trouser men are proper men. "'I don't wear trousers. Why should I? "'Imagine trying to swim in them.' He took the stick and carefully drew a stick woman, which was like a stick man, with a woven paper-vine skirt and two added circles and two dots um, above the skirt. The stick was snatched out of his hand, and at speed Daphne hastily drew a new figure. It was a woman, probably— but as well as the skirt, there was another skirt thing covering the top of her body, with only the arms and head sticking out. Then she stuck the stick in the sand and crossed her arms defiantly, her face red. Ah, right. This was like the time before his older sister went off to live in the unmarried girl's hut. Suddenly everything he said and did had been wrong, and he never knew why. His father had just laughed when he told him, and said he'd understand one day and it was best to keep away. Well, he couldn't keep away here, so he grabbed the stick and tried, as best he could, to draw a second skirt on the top half of the stick woman in front of him. It wasn't very good, but Daphne's look told him he'd done the right thing, whatever it was. But it put a cloud in the sky. It had been fun, playing with the words and pictures, a sort of game that filled his world and kept the visions of dark water away. And now he'd hit a rule he didn't understand, and the world was back to what it was before. He squatted down on the sand and stared out to sea. 
Then he looked down at the little blue bead on his wrist. Oh, yes, and he had no soul. His boy's soul had vanished with the island, and he'd never get a man's soul now. He was the blue hermit crab, hurrying from one shell to another, and the big shell he had thought he could see had been taken away. A squid could snap a crab up in a second, and it wouldn't be a squid for him. It would be some demon or ghost. It would enter his head and take him over. He started to draw in the sand again. Little figures this time, men and, yes, women, women whom he remembered, not covered-up trousermen women, and smaller figures, people of all sizes, filling the sand with life. He drew dogs and canoes and huts, and he drew the wave. The stick seemed to do it all by itself. It was a wonderful curve, if you didn't know what it had done. He shifted along a little and drew one stick figure, with a spear, looking out at the flat horizon. I think all that means sadness, said the girl behind him. Gently, she took the stick out of his hand and drew another figure beside the first one. It was holding a portable roof and wore pantaloons. Now two figures looked out at the endless ocean. Sadness, said Mao. Sadness. He turned the word over on his tongue. Sadness. It was the sound of a wave breaking. It meant you could hear the dark waters in your mind. Then, canoe, said Daphne. Mao looked along the beach, his head still full of sadness. What about canoe? They'd already done canoe hours ago, hadn't they? Canoe was sorted out. And then he saw the canoe, a four-man canoe, coming through the reef. Someone was trying to steer it and not doing a bad job, but the water tumbled and swirled in the new gap, and a canoe like that needed at least two people to guide it. Mao dived into the lagoon. As he surfaced, he could see that the lone paddler was already losing control. The gap in the reef was indeed big enough for a four-man canoe to come through it sideways, but any four-man canoe that actually tried anything as stupid as that while the tide was running would soon be overturned. He fought his way through the churning surf, expecting every second to see the thing break up. He surfaced again after a big wave passed over him, and now the paddler was trying to fend the canoe off the ragged edges of the gap. He was an old man. But he wasn't alone. Mao heard a baby crying somewhere in the bottom of the canoe. Another big surge made the canoe spin, and Mao grabbed at it. It rammed his back against the coral before turning away once more, but he was ready for it when it swung around for a second try at crushing him, and he heaved himself up and into the canoe a moment before it crunched into the reef again. There was someone else lying under a blanket in the rocking canoe. He paid them no attention, but grabbed a paddle and dug it into the water. The old man had some sense, at least, and kept the canoe off the rocks while Mao tried to move it toward the beach. Panic wouldn't help here. You just had to pull it out of the churning mass of water a few inches at a time with long, patient strokes that got easier as you drove it free, until suddenly it was in calmer water and moving quickly. He relaxed a little then, but not too much, because he wasn't sure he'd have the strength left to move it again if it stopped. He leapt out as the canoe was about to hit the beach, and managed to pull it a little farther up onto the sand. The man almost tumbled out, and tried to lift the other person out from under the blanket. A woman. The old man was a bag of bones, and with far more bones than bag. Mao helped him carry the woman and the baby close to the fire, and laid them on the blanket. At first he thought the woman was dead, but there was a flicker of life around her lips. "'She needs water,' croaked the old man, "'and the child needs milk.' "'Where are your women? They will know.' Daphne came running up, parasol bobbing. "'Oh, the poor things!' she said. 
Mao took the baby from the woman, who made a weak and pitiful attempt to hang on to it, and handed it to the girl. He heard, "'Oh, isn't he lovely? Oh, yuck!' behind him, as he hurried to the river and came back with a couple of brimming coconut shells of water that still had the taste of ashes. "'Where are the other women?' asked the old man, as Daphne held the dripping baby at arm's length and looked around desperately for somewhere to put it. "'There's just this one,' said Mao. "'But she's a trouser-man woman. They are not proper human beings,' said the old man. This was news to Mao. "'There's only the two of us here,' he said. The old man looked crestfallen. "'But this is the nation,' he wailed. "'An island of stone, beloved of the gods. I trained as a priest here.' All the time I paddled I was thinking the nation will have survived, and there's just a boy and a cursed girl from the unbaked people. Unbaked? Have you been taught nothing? Emo made them first when he was learning, but he did not leave them long enough in the sun, and you will learn that they are so proud they cover themselves in the sun. They really are very stupid, too. They have more colours than we do, Mao thought, but he didn't say so. "'My name is Mao,' he said, because at least that wouldn't start an argument. "'And I must speak to your chief. Run, boy. Tell him my name. He may have heard of Ataba the priest.' There was a sad but hopeful sound to that last sentence, as if the old man thought this was not very likely. "'There is no chief, not since the wave. It brought the trouserman girl here, and everyone else it took away. I did tell you, sir. But this is such a big island.' I don't think the wave cared. The baby started to cry. Daphne tried to cuddle it without getting too close, and made embarrassed shushing noises. Then an older man, Ataba began. There isn't anyone, said Mao patiently. There's just me and the trouserman girl. He wondered how many times he would have to say this before the old man managed to find the right-shaped space for it in his bald head. Only you? said Ataba, looking bewildered. "'Believe me, sir, sometimes I don't believe it either,' Mao said. "'I think I'll wake up and it will all be a dream.' "'You had the wonderful white god-anchors,' said the old man. "'I was brought here to see them when I was a small boy, and that was when I decided I wanted to be a—' "'I think I'd better give this little boy back to his mummy,' said Daphne quickly. Mao didn't understand the words, but the tone of determination translated itself very well. The baby was screaming. "'His mother cannot feed him,' said Ataba to Mao. "'I found her on a big raft with the child only yesterday. "'There was food on it, but she wouldn't eat, "'and the child takes no nourishment from her. "'It will die soon.' Mao looked at the little bawling face and thought, "'No, does not happen.' He caught the ghost girl's eye, pointed to the baby, and made eating motions with his mouth. "'You eat babies?' said Daphne, stepping back. Mao picked up the tone of horror, and it took a lot of creative miming to get her to understand that the one who was going to be fed was the baby. "'What?' said Daphne. "'Feed it? What with?' "'Oh, well,' Mao thought, "'the baby is screaming, and I'm in trouble whatever happens. But does not happen?' He waved vaguely at her flat chest under its slightly grubby white frills. Daphne went bright pink. "'What? No, how dare you! You have to—' She hesitated. She wasn't really sure about this, since everything she knew on the subject of the lumps at the front was based on an overheard, giggly conversation between the housemaids that she had found unbelievable, and a strange lecture from one of her aunts, in which the phrase, when you're old enough, had turned up a lot, 
and the rest of it sounded unlikely. "'You have to be married,' she said firmly. It didn't matter that he didn't understand. She felt better for saying it. "'Does she know anything? Has she born children?' said Ataba. "'I don't think so. Then there will be no milk. Please fetch another woman, one who has not long had—' "'Oh!' The old man sagged as he remembered. "'We have food,' said Mao. "'It must be milk,' said the old man flatly. "'The baby is too young for anything else.' "'Well, at least there can be a hut for the mother up at the women's place. "'It's not too far. I can light a fire there,' said Mao. "'You dare to go into a women's place?' "'The priest looked shocked, and then smiled. "'Ah, I see. You are only a boy.' "'No, I left my boy's soul behind me. "'I think the wave washed it away.' "'It washed away too many things,' said Ataba. "'But you have no tattoos, not even the sunset wave. "'Have you learned the chants? "'No.' No manhood feast? You were not given a man's soul? None of those. And the thing with the knife where you— Not that either, said Mao quickly. All I have is this, he held out his wrist. The blue jade stone? Their protection for only a day or so. I know. Then it could be that behind your eyes is a demon or a vengeful spirit. Mao thought about this. He agreed with it. I don't know what's behind my eyes, he said. All I know is that it is very angry. On the other hand, you did save us, said the old man, smiling at him a little nervously. That doesn't sound like any demon I've ever heard of. And I hope you gave thanks to the gods for your salvation. Gave thanks, said Mao. They may have plans for you, said the priest cheerfully. Plans, said Mao, his voice as cold as the dark current. Plans, yes, I see. Someone must be alive to bury the rest, was that it? He took a step forward, his fists clenched. We cannot know the reasons for all that happened. Ataba began backing away. I saw their faces. I sent them into the dark water. I tied small stones to little bodies. The wave took everyone I love, and everything I am wants to know why. Why did the wave spare you? Why did it spare me? Why did it spare that baby which will die soon enough? Why does it rain? How many stars are in the sky? We cannot know these things. Just be thankful that the gods spared your life, shouted the old man. I will not. To thank them for my life means I thank them for the deaths. I want to find reasons. I want to understand the reasons. But I can't, because there are no reasons. Things happen or do not happen, and that is all there is. The roar of the grandfather's anger in Mao's head was so loud that he wondered why Ataba didn't hear it. "'You scream out against the gods, boy! You know nothing! You will bring down the world! You will destroy the nation! Ask forgiveness of Emo!' "'I will not! He gave this world to Lokaha!' roared Mao. "'Let him ask forgiveness of the dead! Let him ask forgiveness of me! But don't tell me that I am supposed to thank the gods that I am alive to remember that everyone else died!' Someone was shaking Mao, but it seemed to be happening to another person a long way off. "'Stop this! You're making the baby cry!' Mao stared at Daphne's furious face. "'Baby! Food!' she said insistently. Her meaning was very clear, even if he didn't understand the actual words. Did she think he was a magician? Women fed babies, everyone knew that. There was no milk on the island. Didn't she understand? There was no—' He stopped. 
because a bit of his raging brain had just opened up and was showing him pictures. He stared at them and thought, Could that work? Yes, there it was, the silver thread to a small part of the future. It might work. It had to work. Baby, food, Daphne repeated insistently, giving him another shake. He gently pushed her arms out of the way. This needed thinking about and careful planning. The old man was looking at him as if he were on fire, and he stepped back quickly when Mao picked up his fish spear and strode into the lagoon. At least he tried to make it look like a good manly stride, but inside his mind was full of rage. Were the grandfathers mad? Was Ataba mad? Did they really think he should thank the gods for his life? If it hadn't been for the ghost girl, he'd have taken himself to the dark water. Babies and milk was a smaller problem, but it was noisier and closer to hand. He could see the answer. He could see a little picture of how it would have to work. It depended on many things, but there was a path. If he followed the steps, there should be milk. And it had to be easier to get milk for a baby than to understand the nature of the gods. He stared down into the water, not actually seeing anything other than his thoughts. He'd need more tubers, and maybe some beer, but not too much. First, though, he'd have to catch a fish. And there one was, only a little way away from his feet, white against the white sand, so that only its pale shadow gave it away. It floated there like a gift from the gods. No! It was there because he had been so still, as a hunter should be. It was completely unaware of him. He speared the fish, cleaned it, and took it to the priest, who was sitting between the two big god-anchors. You know how to cook fish, sir? Are you here to blaspheme against the gods, demon boy? said Ataba. No, it would only be blasphemy to say they didn't exist if they were real, said Mao, keeping his voice level. Now, can you cook fish? By the look of it, Ataba was not going to argue religion when there was fresh food around. Since before you were born, said the old man, eyeing the fish greedily. Then let the ghost girl have some, and please make a gruel for the woman. She won't eat it, said Ataba flatly. There was food on her raft. There is something wrong in her head. Mao looked at the unknown woman, who was still by the fire. The ghost girl had brought along more blankets from the sweet Judy, and at least the woman was sitting up now. Daphne was beside her, holding her hand and talking to her. They are making a woman's place, he thought. The language doesn't matter. There will be others, said Ataba behind him. Lots of people will end up here. How do you know? The smoke, boy! I saw it from miles away. They will come. We weren't the only ones, and maybe the raiders will come too from their great land. You will call upon the gods then, oh yes. You will grovel before Emo when the raiders come. After all this, what's left for them? What have we still got that they would want? Skulls. Flesh. Their pleasure in our death. The usual things. Pray to the gods, if you dare, that those cannibals do not come this far. Will that help? said Mao. Ataba shrugged. What else do we have? Then pray to the gods to send milk for the child, said Mao. Surely they can do something so simple. And what will you do, demon boy? Something else. Mao paused then and thought, He's an old man. He came many miles, and he did stop for the woman and her baby. That is important. He let his anger subside again. I don't mean to insult you, Ataba, he said. Oh, I understand, said the old man. We all rage against the gods sometimes. Even you? Yes, 
first thing every morning when my knees go click and my back aches. I curse them then, you can be certain of it. But quietly, you understand. And I say, why did you make me old? And what do they reply? It doesn't work like that. But as the day wears on, and there is maybe some beer, I think I find their answer arising in my mind. I think they tell me it is because you will prefer it to the alternative. He looked at Mao's puzzled expression. Not dead, you see? I don't believe that, said Mao. I mean, I think you're just hearing your own thoughts. Do you wonder where your thoughts come from? I don't think they come from a demon. Ataba smiled. We shall see. Mao stared at the old man. He had to be proud about this. This was Mao's island. He had to act like a chief. There is something I am going to try, he said stiffly. This is for my nation. If I don't come back, you can stay here. If you stay, there are the huts at the women's place. If I come back, I will fetch you beer, old man. There is beer that happens, and beer that does not happen, said the priest. I like the beer that happens. Mao smiled. First, there must be the milk that happens, he said. Fetch it, demon boy, said Ataba, and I'll believe anything. Chapter 5 The Milk That Happens Mao hurried up to the women's place and entered more boldly than he had done before. There was no time to waste. The sun was dropping down the sky, and the ghost of the moon was rising. This had to work, and he'd have to concentrate and time it right, and he probably wouldn't get another try. First, get some beer. That wasn't hard. The women made mother of beer every day, and he found some fizzing gently to itself on a shelf. It was full of dead flies, but they would be no problem. He did the beer ceremony and sang the song of the four brothers as the beer required and took down a big bunch of plantains and some whistling yams. They were old and wrinkled, just right for pigs. The nation had been rich enough to have four three-legged cauldrons and two of them were up here in the place. He got a fire going under one and dumped the plantains and the yams in. He added a bit of beer, let it all boil until the roots were soft and flowery, and then it was just a matter of pounding it all together into one big beery mess with the butt of his spear. Even so, the shadows were getting longer by the time he continued on toward the forest, with the oozing beery mash dripping in a woven punkwood bag under one arm and a small calabash under the other. It was the best one he could find. Someone had been very careful to scrape out as much of the orange flesh as possible and dry the rind with care, so that it was light and strong without any cracks. He left his spear propped up outside the women's place. For a lone man, a spear was no good against an angry hog. A furious boar would bite one in half, or spit itself on the shaft and keep on going, a ball of biting, slashing rage that didn't know when it was dead. And the sows were worse when they had piglets at heel, so he was probably going to die if the beer didn't work. At least there was a little piece of luck. There was a fat old sow on the track, piglets all around her, and Mao saw her before she saw him, but only just. He stopped dead. She gave a snort and shifted her big wobbling body, uncertain at the moment whether to charge but ready to do so if he made a wrong move. He took the big ball of mash out of the bag and tossed it toward her. He was running before it hit the forest floor, crashing away like a frightened creature. He stopped after a minute and listened. From some way behind him came some very satisfied grunting. And now for the dirty bit. He moved a lot more quietly now, making a big circle to bring himself back onto the path past where the sow lay. She'd come from the big mucky wallow the pigs had made where a stream crossed the track. 
They loved it, and it was filthy. It stank of pig, and Mao rolled in it until he did, too. Globs of the slimy stuff slithered off him as he crept back along the track. Well, he certainly didn't smell human any more. He probably never would again. The old sow had trampled herself a nest in the undergrowth and was making happy, beery, snoring noises, with her family crawling and fighting all over her. Mao dropped to the ground and began to crawl forward. The sow's eyes were shut. Surely she wouldn't smell him through all the muck? Well, that was a risk he had to take. Would the piglets, already shoving one another aside to get at the teats, work out what he was? They squealed all the time in any case, but did they have a special squeal that would set the sow on him? He'd find out. Would he even be able to get the milk out? He'd never heard of anyone milking a pig before. Something else to find out. He'd have to learn a lot in a short time, but he'd fight Lokaha everywhere he spread his dark wings. Does not happen, he whispered, and slid forward into the brawling, squalling mass of pork. Daphne tugged another log onto the fire, straightened up, and glared at the old man. He might do a bit of work, she thought. Some clothes could only help, too. But all he did was sit by the fire and nod at her occasionally. He'd eaten more than his fair share of the baked fish. She'd measured it with a stick. And she had been the one to mash up some of the fish with her own hands and feed it to the unknown woman, who looked a bit better now and had at least eaten a few mouthfuls. She was still clutching her baby, but it wasn't crying any more, and that was more worrying than the crying had been. Something screamed up in the hills and went on screaming, and then went on screaming louder. The old man creaked to his feet and picked up Mao's club, which he could barely lift. When he tried to raise it over his shoulder, he went over backward. The scream arrived, followed by the screamer, something that looked human but was dripping green mud and smelled like a swamp on a very hot day. It thrust a warm, heavy gourd towards Daphne, who took it before she could stop herself. Then it shouted, Milk! and ran on into the dark. There was a splash as it dived into the lagoon. The smell hung in the air for quite a long time. When a faint breeze blew it over the fire, the flames burned blue for a moment. Mao spent the night much farther along the beach, and went for another swim as soon as it was light. The smell had this about it. He could sit on the bottom of the lagoon and scrub himself with sand and weeds, and then swim underwater in any direction, and yet, as soon as he surfaced, there the smell was waiting for him. He caught some fish and left them where people could see them. At the moment they were fast asleep. The mother and her baby were curled up in their blanket, sleeping so peacefully that Mao envied them, and the old man was sleeping with his mouth open and looked as if he was dead, although by the sound of it he wasn't. The girl had gone back to the sweet Judy for some strange trouserman reason. He tried to keep away from the others during the day, but the ghost girl seemed to be watching for him all the time, and he was running out of nonchalant ways to avoid her. In the end, she found him in the evening, while he was repairing the field fences with fresh thorns to keep the pigs out. She didn't say anything, but just sat and watched him. But that can be quite annoying when people do it for long enough. A big cloud of silence builds up like a thunderstorm. But Mao was good at silence, and the girl wasn't. Sooner or later she had to talk or burst. It didn't matter that he couldn't understand nearly everything she said. She just had to talk, to fill up the world with words. "'My family owns more land than there is on this whole island,' she said. "'We have farms, and once a shepherd gave me an orphan lamb to look after. That's a baby sheep, by the way. 
I haven't seen any here, so you probably don't know what they are. They go, meh. People say they go, bah, but they don't. Sheep can't pronounce their bees, but people still go on saying it because they don't listen properly. My mother made me a little shepherdess outfit, and I looked so sweet it would make you sick, and the wretched creature used to take every opportunity to butt me in the... to butt me. Of course, all this won't mean very much to you. Mao concentrated on weaving the long thorns between the stakes. He'd have to go and get some more from the big thickets on the north slope, he thought. Perhaps I ought to go and get some right now. If I run, perhaps you won't try to follow me. Anyway, the thing is that the shepherd showed me how to get a lamb to suck milk off your fingers, the girl went on relentlessly. You have to sort of dribble the milk slowly over your hand. Isn't that funny? I can speak three languages and play the flute and the piano, but it turns out that the most useful thing I've ever learned is how to make something small and hungry suck milk off my fingers. That sounds as though she said what she thinks is an important bit, Mao told himself and so he nodded and smiled. "'We also own lots of pigs. I've seen them with the little piglets and everything,' she continued. "'I'm talking about pigs. Oink, oink, grunt, grunt.' "'Ah,' thought Mao, "'this is about pigs and milk. Oh, good, just what I wasn't hoping for.' "'Oink,' he said. "'Yes, and, you see, I want to get something sorted out. I know you can't milk a pig like you can a sheep or a cow because they don't have—' She touched her chest for a moment, and then rapidly put her hands behind her back. They don't have uddery parts. There's just a little... the little... tubes, she coughed. They can't be milked, understand? And now she moved her hands up and down, as if she was pulling ropes, while at the same time making squish-squish noises for some reason. She cleared her throat. Er, uh, so I think the only way you could have got the baby's milk... "'Excuse me, is to sneak up on some sow with a litter of little ones, "'which would be very dangerous indeed, "'and crawl up when she was feeding them. "'They make such a noise, don't they? "'And, um, uh, she screwed up her lips and made a sucking sound. "'Mao groaned. She'd worked it out. "'And, uh, well, I mean, yuck,' she said. "'And then I thought, well, all right, yuck, but the baby is happy, "'and has stopped crying, thank goodness, "'and even his mother is looking better, so, well, I thought—' I bet even great heroes of history, you know, with helmets and swords and plumes and everything, I bet they wouldn't get down in the dirt because a baby was dying of hunger and crawl up to a pig and... I mean, when you think about it, it's still yuck, but in a good way. It's still yucky, but the reason you did it, it makes it sort of holy. At last her voice trailed away. Mao had understood baby. He was also pretty sure about yuck, because her tone of voice practically drew a picture. But that was all. She just sends words up into the sky, he thought. Why is she going on at me? Is she angry? Is she saying I did a bad thing? Well, around about the middle of the night I'm going to have to do it again, because babies need feeding all the time. And it'll be worse. I'll have to find another sow. <laughs> Ghost girl. You weren't there when she realised something was going on. I'd swear her eyes had shone red. And run? Who'd have thought that something that big could go that fast that quickly? I only outran her because the piglets couldn't keep up. And soon I'll have to do it all again, and go on doing it until the woman can feed the baby herself. I must, even though I may have no soul, even though I may be a demon who thinks he's a boy, even though I may be an empty thing and in a world of shadows, because... His thoughts stopped, just there, as if they had run into sand. Mao's eyes opened wide. Because what? 
because does not happen, because I must act like a man or they will think less of me. Yes, and yes, but more than that. I need there to be the old man and the baby and the sick woman and the ghost girl, because without them I would go into the dark water right now. I asked for reasons, and here they are, yelling and smelling and demanding, the last people in the world, and I need them. Without them I would be just a figure on the grey beach, a lost boy, not knowing who I am. But they all know me. I matter to them, and that is who I am. Daphne's face glistened in the firelight. She'd been crying. All we can do is talk baby talk, Mao thought. So why does she talk all the time? I set some of the milk to keep cool in the river, said Daphne, idly drawing on the sand with a finger. But we will need some more tonight. More milk? Oink? Yes, said Mao. They fell into another of those awkward silences, which the ghost girl ended with, My father will come, you know. He will come. Mao recognised this. He looked down at what she had absent-mindedly been drawing in the dirt. It was a picture of a stick girl and a stick man, standing side by side on a big canoe, which he knew was called a boat. And when he watched her, he thought, She does it too. She sees the silver line into the future and tries to pull herself toward it. The fire crackled in the distance, sending sparks up toward the red evening sky. There wasn't much wind today, and the smoke rose to the clouds. He will come, whatever you think. The Rogation Sunday Islands are much too far away. The wave could never reach them. And if it did, Government House is built of stone and very strong. He is the governor. He could send out a dozen ships to look for me if he wanted. He already has. One will be here in a week. She was crying again. Mao hadn't understood the words, but he understood the tears. You're not sure of the future either. You thought you were, and it was so close you could see it in your head, and now you think it's washed away, so you're trying to talk it into coming back. He felt her hand touch his. He didn't know what to do about that, but squeezed her fingers gently a couple of times, and pointed at the column of smoke. There couldn't be many fires burning in the islands now. It was a sign that must show up for miles. He will come, he said. Just for a moment she looked astonished. You think he will come, she said. Mao rummaged around in his small collection of phrases. Repetition should do it. He will come. See, I told you he would come, she said, beaming. He'll see the smoke and steer right here, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day, just like Moses, she jumped up. But while I'm still here, I'd better go and see to the little boy. She ran off, happier than he'd ever seen her. And all it had taken was three words. Would her father come to find her in his big boat? Well, he might. The smoke of the fire streamed across the sky. Someone would come. The raiders, he thought. They were a story. But every boy had seen the big wooden club in the chief's hut. It was studded with shark teeth, and Mao hadn't even been able to lift it the first time. It was a souvenir from the last time the raiders came as far east as the nation. After that they knew better. Every boy tried to lift the trophy club. Every boy listened wide-eyed to the descriptions of the big dark canoes, their prows hung with bloody skulls, their oars rowed by captives who were near skeletons themselves, and tales of how those prisoners were lucky, because when they were too weak to row any more, they were beheaded just for their skulls. The prisoners who were taken back to the land of fires weren't treated quite so well, even before they got turned into dinner. 
you got told this in detail. At this point, when you were sitting there with your mouth open, or perhaps your fingers over your ears, you were just trying not to wet yourself. But then you were told about Aganu, the chief who fought the leader of the raiders in single combat, as was their custom, and took the shark-tooth club from his dead hand, and the raiders had run back to their war canoes. They worshipped Lokaha himself, and if he was not going to give them a victory, there was no point in staying, was there? After that you were given another chance to lift the club, and Mao had never heard of a boy failing to lift it this second time, and only now did he wonder, was it really because the story made boys stronger, or did the old men have some way of making the club heavier? You insult the memory of your ancestors. Oh, they had been quiet all day. They hadn't even said anything about him milking the pig. It's not insulting, he said aloud. I'd use a trick if it was me, a trick to give them hope. The strong boys wouldn't need it, and the boys who are not strong would feel stronger. Every one of us dreamed of being the one who'd beat their champion. Unless you believe that you might, you can't. Weren't you ever boys? There was no grumbling roar in his head. I don't think they think, he thought. Perhaps they used to really think, but the thoughts have worn out from being thought so often. I will keep the baby alive if I have to milk every pig on this island, he said. But it was horrible to think that he might have to. No reply. I thought you might like to know that, he said, since he'll be taught about you. Probably. He'll be a new generation. He'll call this place home, like I do. The reply came slowly and sounded grinding and cracked. You shame the nation. He is not of our blood. Do you have any? snapped Mao out loud. Do you have any? a voice echoed. He looked up into the ragged crown of a coconut tree. The grey parrot looked down on him with its mouth open. Show us your drawers. Do you have any? Do you have any? it squawked. That's what they are, Mao thought. They're just parrots. Then he stood up, grasped his spear, turned to face the sea, and guarded the nation from the darkness. He didn't sleep, of course, but at some point Mao blinked, and when he opened his eyes again the stars were bright and it was not long before dawn. That was not too much of a problem. A snoring old sow would be easy enough to find. She wouldn't ask any questions if she found a nice, big, beery mash in front of her, and when the time came to run he might even be able to see where he was going. He told himself this to cheer himself up, but you couldn't get away from it. Milking a pig would be much harder the second time, because you'd have to forget how horrible it had been the first time. In the dark, the surf shone where it broke over the reef, and it was time to go through it all again. He'd rather have been going into battle. The grandfathers certainly thought he should. They'd had time to pull some pig thoughts together. "'Is this the way of the warrior?' they growled. "'Does the warrior roll in the muck with hogs?' You shame us. Mao thought as loudly as he could. This warrior is fighting death. The baby was already whimpering. The young woman gave Mao a sad little smile when he took the empty calabash and washed it out. She never said anything even now. Once again, he didn't bother to take the spear. It had only slowed him down. The old man was sitting on the slopes above the beach, staring up at the fading night. He nodded at Mao. Going milking again, demon boy? he said, and grinned. He had two teeth. "'Want to try it, sir? You've got the mouth for it. Ha! But not the legs. I did my bit, though. Last night I begged the gods to let you succeed.' "'Well, have a rest tonight,' said Mao, "'and I'll go and line the muck without a prayer. And tomorrow 
I'll get some sleep, and you can pray to the gods to make it rain milk. I think you'll find lying in the muck is more reliable. Are you trying to be smart, boy? Trying not to be dumb, sir. Games with words, boy, games with words. The gods are in everything we do. Who knows? Perhaps they see a use for your sorrowful blasphemy. You mentioned beer yesterday, he added hopefully. Mao smiled. Do you know how to make beer, he said. No, said Ataba. I have always seen it as my duty to do the drinking part. Making beer is women's business. The trouserman girl does not know how to make beer, no matter how much I shout at her. I'll need all that is left, said Mao firmly. Oh dear, are you sure? said Ataba, his face falling. I'm not going to try to suck milk out of a sober pig, sir. Ah, yes, said Ataba sadly. Well, I shall pray, and for the milk also. It was time to go. Mao realised that he had just been putting things off. He should have been listening to himself. If you didn't believe in prayer, then you had to believe in hard work. There was just enough time to make a dash and find a sow before they woke up. But the old man was still staring at the sky. What are you looking for? asked Mao. Omens, portents, messages from the gods, demon boy. Mao looked up. Only the star of fire was visible this close to dawn. Have you seen any? he asked. No, but it would be terrible to miss one, wouldn't it? said Ataba. Was there one before the wave? Was there a message in the sky? Quite possibly, but we were not good enough to know what it meant. We would have if they'd shouted a warning. We'd have understood that. Why didn't they just shout? Hello! It was so loud it seemed to echo off the mountain. Mao felt the shock down his body, and then his brain cut in with, It came from the sea. There's a light on the water, and it's not raiders because they wouldn't shout hello. But the old man was on his feet, mouth open in a horrible grin. Aha! You believed! he crowed, waving a skinny finger at Mao. Oh, yes, you did, just for a second, and you were fearful, and rightly so. There's a canoe with a lobster claw sail, said Mao, trying to ignore him. They're coming around the point. Look, they even have a torch burning. But Ataba hadn't finished gloating. For just one moment, you, I don't care. Come on, there's more people. The canoe was coming through the new gap in the reef. Mao made out two figures, still shadowy against the rising light, lowering the sail. The tide was right, and the people knew what they were doing, because the craft slid easily into the lagoon, as if it were steering itself. It nudged the beach gently, and a young man jumped down and ran toward Mao. "'Are there women here?' he said. "'Please, my brother's wife is going to have a baby. We have one woman, but she is sick. Can she sing the calling song?' Mao glanced at the unknown woman. He'd never heard a word from her, and he wasn't at all sure she was right in the head. "'I doubt it,' he said. The man sagged. He was young, only a few years older than Mao. "'We were taking Carle to the woman's place on the Overshoal Islands when the wave hit,' he said. "'They're gone. So many places have gone. And we saw your smoke. Please, where is your chief?' "'I'm here,' said Mao firmly. "'Take her up to the women's place. Ataba here will show you the way.' The old priest sniffed and scowled, but didn't argue. The young man stared at Mao. "'You were the chief?' But you're just a boy. Not just. Not even. Not only. Who knows? said Mao. The wave came. These are new days. Who knows what we are? We survived, that's all. He paused and thought. And we become what we have to be. There is a girl who can help you. I will send her up to the women's place, he said. Thank you. 
It is going to be very soon. My name is Pilu. My brother is Milo. You mean the ghost girl? hissed Ataba in Mao's ear as the boy ran back down the beach. That's not right. She doesn't know the birthing customs. Do you? asked Mao. Can you help her? Ataba backed away as if he'd been burned. Me? No! Then stay out of the way. Look, she will know what to do. Women always do, said Mao, trying to sound certain. Besides, it was true, wasn't it? Boys had to live on the island and build a canoe before they were officially men, but with girls it just happened somehow. Then they magically knew things, like how to hold babies the right way up, and how to go oozy widdy widdy widowin then, without the baby screaming until its little face went blue. Besides, she's not a man, she can talk, and she's alive, he finished. Well, I suppose, in the circumstances, Ataba conceded. Mao turned to look at the two brothers, who were helping a very pregnant woman onto the beach. Show them the way. I'll be quick, he said, and ran off. Are trousermen women the same as real women, he wondered, as he ran. She got very angry when I drew that picture. Do they ever take their clothes off? Oh, please, don't let her say no. And his next thought, as he ran into the low forest, which was alive with birdsong, was, Who did I just say please to? Daphne lay in the dark with a towel round her head. It was stuffy in the wreck, and damp, and smelly, but you had to maintain standards. Her grandmother had been very keen on maintaining standards. She positively looked for standards to maintain, and if she didn't find any, she made some up and maintained them. Sleeping in the captain's hammock probably wasn't maintaining standards, but her mattress was damp and sticky with salt. Everything was damp. Nothing dried properly down here, and of course she couldn't hang her washing out up above the beach in case men saw her under things, which would definitely not maintain any standards at all. The hammock swung gently back and forth. It was very uncomfortable, but it had the big advantage that the little red crabs couldn't get onto it. She knew they would be scuttling around on the floor again, getting into everything, but at least with the towel around her head she couldn't hear the little skrittle-skrittle noises they made as they ran about. Unfortunately, it didn't cut out what back home would have been called the dawn chorus, but that just wasn't the right word for the explosion of noise that was happening outside. It was like a war with whistles. Everything with a feather on it went crazy, and the wretched pantaloon bird suppers also came up as the sun rose. She could hear them pattering on the deck above her. And by the sound of it, Captain Roberts's parrot still hadn't run out of swear words. Some of them were foreign, which made it worse. But she could still tell it was swearing. She just could. Sleep came and went in patches, but in every fuzzy half-awake dream the boy moved. When she had been younger she'd been given a book full of patriotic pictures about the Empire, and one had stuck in her mind because it was called The Nobbly Savage. She hadn't understood why a boy with a spear and the skin as golden-brown as freshly poured bronze was called Nobbly, since he looked as smooth as cream, and it wasn't until years later that she realised how he was supposed to pronounce the word that was spelt noble. Mao looked like him, but the boy in the picture had been smiling, and Mao didn't smile, and he moved like something trapped in a cage. She was sorry now that she had shot at him. Her memory swirled in the ripples of her sleepy brain. She remembered him on that first dreadful day. He'd walked around as though he was some kind of engine, and hadn't heard her, hadn't even seen her. He was carrying the bodies of dead people, and his eyes were looking into another world. Sometimes she thought they still were. He seemed angry all the time, in the way that Grandmother got angry when she found out that standards were not being maintained. 
She groaned as there was a pattering overhead. Another pantaloon bird had thrown up the remains of last night's dinner, vomiting little bones all over the deck. Time to get up. She unwrapped the towel from her head and sat up. Mao was standing by the bed watching her. How had he gotten in? How had he walked across the deck without treading on a crab? She would have heard. Why was he staring like that? Why, oh why, hadn't she worn her one clean nightshirt? How dare you walk in like... she began. Woman, baby, said Mao urgently. He had only just arrived and had been wondering how to wake her up. What? Baby, come. What's wrong with it now? Did you get the milk? Mao tried to think. What was the word she used to mean one thing after another thing? Oh, yes. Woman and baby, he said. What about them? He could see that it hadn't worked either. Then an idea struck him. He held his arms out as if there was a huge pumpkin in front of him. Woman, baby. Then he folded his arms and rocked them. The ghost girl stared at him. If Emo made the world, Mao thought, why can't we understand one another? This is impossible, Daphne thought. Is it about that poor woman? But she can't possibly be having another baby. Or maybe he means... People come island? Yes, shouted Mao, relieved. A woman? Mao did the pumpkin act again. Yes, and she's... Enceinte? It meant pregnant, but her grandmother said a lady would never use that word in polite company. Mao, who was certainly not what her grandmother would have thought of as polite company, looked blank. Blushing furiously, Daphne did her own version of the pumpkin act. Ah, uh, like this? Yes. Well, that's nice, said Daphne, as steel terror rose up inside her. I hope she's very happy. Now I've really got to do some washing. Women's place, you come, said Mao. Daphne shook her head. No, it's nothing to do with me, is it? I don't know anything about babies being born. Which wasn't true, but she wished... Oh, how she wished it was true. If she closed her eyes, she could still hear no. I'm not coming. You can't make me, she said, pulling back. He gripped her arm, softly but firmly. Baby, you come, he said, his voice as firm as the grip. You didn't see the little coffin next to the big one, she screamed. You don't know what that was like. And it came to her like a blow. He does. I watched him bury all those people in the sea. He knows. How can I refuse? She let herself relax. She wasn't nine years old any more, sitting at the top of the stairs, cowering and listening and getting out of the way quickly when the doctor came thundering up the stairs with his big black bag. And the worst of it all, if you could find the highest wave in a sea of worsts, was that she hadn't been able to do anything. Poor Captain Roberts had a medical book in his sea chest, she said, and a box of drugs and things. I'll go and fetch them, shall I? The brothers were waiting at the narrow entrance to the women's place when Mao arrived with Daphne, and that was when the world changed yet again. It changed when the older brother said, This is a trouserman girl. Yes, the wave brought her, said Mao. And then the younger brother said something in what sounded like trouserman, and Daphne almost dropped the box she was carrying and spoke quickly to him in the same language. What did you say to her, said Mao. What did she say to you? I, I said... Hello, lovely lady, the young man began. Who cares what anyone said to anybody? She's a woman. Now get me in there. That was Carle, the mother-to-be, hanging heavily between her husband and her brother-in-law, and very big and very angry. The brothers looked up at the rocky entrance. Ah, uh, the husband began. Ah, fear of the safety of the Wingo, 
thought Mao. I'll help her in, he said quickly. I'm not a man, I can go in. Do you really have no soul? said the younger brother. Only the priest said you had no soul. Mao looked around for Ataba, but the old man suddenly had business elsewhere. I don't know. What does one look like? he said. He put his arm around the woman, and, with a worried Daphne supporting her on the other side, they headed into the place. Sing the baby a good song to welcome its pretty lady, shouted Pilu after them. Then he said to his brother, Do you trust him? He is young, and he has no tattoos, said Milo. But he seems older, and maybe he has no soul. Well, I've never seen mine. Have you seen yours? And the trouserman girl in white? You remember the praying ladies in white we saw that time when we helped carry Boson Higgs to that big house for making people better? And how they sewed up the gash in his leg so neat? She is like them, you bet. She knows all about medicine, for sure. Chapter 6 A Star is Born Daphne flipped despairingly through the medical book, which had been published in 1770, before people had learned to spell properly. It was stained and falling apart like a very crumbly pack of cards. It had crude woodcut diagrams like How to Saw a Leg Off, Ah, Oh, and How to Set Bones, Yuck, and cutaway diagrams of Oh, No, Ah, Oh. The book's title was The Mariner's Medical Companion, and it was for people whose medicine cabinet was a bottle of castor oil, whose operating table was a bench sliding up and down a heaving deck, and whose tools were a saw, a hammer, and a bucket of hot tar and a piece of string. There wasn't much in there about childbirth, and what there was, she turned the page, oh, an illustration that she really did not want to see. It was for those times when things were so bad that not even a surgeon could make them worse. The mother-to-be was lying on a woven bed in one of the huts, groaning, and Daphne wasn't sure if this was good or bad, but she was absolutely certain that Mao shouldn't be watching her, boy or not. This was called the women's place, and it didn't get much more womanly than it was about to be. She pointed at the door. Mao looked astonished. Shoo! Out! I mean it! I don't care if you're human or a ghost or a demon or whatever you are, but you aren't a female one. There's got to be some rules. That's it. Out! And no listening at the key piece of string, she added, pulling the grass curtains that did very badly the job of a door. She felt better for all that. A good shouting at somebody always makes you feel better and in control, especially if you aren't. Then she sat down by the mat again. The woman grabbed her arm and rattled out a question. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I don't understand, Daphne said. And the woman spoke again, gripping her arm so tightly that the skin went white. I don't know what to do. Oh, no! Don't let it go wrong. The little coffin, so small on top of the big one, she'd never forget it. She'd wanted to look inside, but they wouldn't let her. And they wouldn't listen, wouldn't let her explain. Men came around to sit with her father, so the house was full of people all night, and there wasn't a new baby brother or sister, and that wasn't all that had gone from her world. So she'd sat there, on the top landing, all night, next to the coffins, wanting to do something and not daring to do it and feeling so sorry for the poor little dead boy crying all alone. The woman arched her body and yelled something. Hold on, there had to be a song. Yes, that's what they said, a song to welcome the baby. What song? How would she know? Maybe it wouldn't matter what song it was, so long as it was a welcoming song, a good song for the child's spirit to hear, so that it would hurry up to be born. Yes, that sounded like a good idea. But... 
Why did she have, just for a moment, the certainty that it was supposed to be a good one? And here came a song, so old in her mind that she could not remember not knowing it, a song her mother sang to her in the days when she still had a mother. She leaned down, cleared her throat carefully, and sang, Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. The woman stared at her, seemed puzzled for a moment, and then relaxed. Up above the world so high, like a diamond in the sky, sang Daphne's lips, while her brain thought, She's got a lot of milk, she could easily feed two babies, so I should get them to bring the other woman and her child up here. And this thought was followed by, Did I just think that? But I don't even know how babies are born. I hope there's no blood. I hate the sight of blood. When the blazing sun is gone, when he nothing shines upon, then you show your little light, twinkle, twinkle, all the night. Then the traveller in the dark thanks you for your tiny spark. And now something was happening. She carefully pulled aside the woman's skirt. Oh, so, that's how. My goodness. I don't know what to do. And here came another thought, as if it had been lying in wait. This is what you do. The men were waiting outside the gateway to the place, feeling unnecessary and surplus to requirements, which is exactly the appropriate feeling in the circumstances. At least Mao had time to learn their names. Milota Dan, Big, the oldest, who was head and shoulders taller than anyone Mao had ever seen, and Pilu Si, small, always rushing, and hardly ever not smiling. He found out that Pilu did all the talking. We went on a trousman boat for six months once, all the way to a big place called Port Mercia. Good fun! We saw huge houses made of stone, and they had meat called beef, and we learned trouserman talk. And when they dropped us off back home, they gave us big steel knives and needles and a three-legged pot. Hush, said Milo, raising a hand. She's singing in trouserman. Come on, Pilu, you're the best at this. Mao leaned forward. What's it about? Look, our job was to pull on ropes and carry things, Pilu complained. Not work out songs. But you said you could speak trouserman. Mao insisted. To get by, yes, but this is very complicated, um... This is important, brother, said Milo. This is the first thing my son will hear. Quiet. Uh, I think it's about stars, said Pilu, bent in concentration. Stars is good, said Milo, looking around approvingly. She's saying the baby. He, said Milo firmly, he'll be a boy. Uh, yes, certainly. He will be... Yes, like a star, guiding people in the dark. He will twinkle, but I don't know what that means. They looked up at the dawn sky. The last of the stars looked back, but twinkled in the wrong language. He will guide people, said Pilu. How does she know that? This is a powerful song. I think she's making it up, Ataba snapped. Oh, said Milo, turning on him. Where did you come from? Do you think my son won't be a great leader? Well, no, but I... Hold on, hold on, said Pilu. I think he will seek to know what the stars mean. I'm pretty sure of that. And, and look, I'm having to work hard on this, you know, because of this wandering. People won't be in the dark, he finished quickly, and then added, That was really hard to do, you know. My head aches. This is priest stuff. Quiet, said Mao. I just heard something. They fell silent 
and the baby cried again. "'My son!' said Milo, as the others cheered. "'And he'll be a great warrior!' Uh, uh, I'm, "'I'm not sure it meant—' Pilu began. "'A great man, anyway,' said Milo, waving a hand. "'They say the birth song can be a prophecy, for sure. "'That type of language at this time. "'It's telling us what will be right enough.' "'Do the trousermen have gods?' asked Mao. "'Sometimes, when they remember. "'Hey, here she comes.' "'The outline of the ghost girl appeared in the stone entrance to the place. "'Mr. Pilu, tell your brother he is the father of a little boy "'and his wife is well and sleeping.' "'That news was passed on with a whoop, which is easy to translate.' "'And he will be called Twinkle,' Milo suggested, in broken English. "'No, I mean, no, don't. Not Twinkle,' said the ghost girl quickly. "'That would be wrong. Very, very wrong. Forget about Twinkle. Twinkle, no.' "'Guiding star,' said Mao, and that met with general approval. "'That would be very auspicious,' said Ataba. He added, "'Is there going to be beer by any chance?' The choice was also translated for the ghost girl, who indicated that any name that wasn't Twinkle was bound to be good. Then she asked, no, commanded, that the other young woman and her baby be brought up, and all sorts of things carried to the place from the wreck of the sweet Judy. The men jumped to it. There was a purpose.'